All right, good morning. Welcome to our next scattered gathering. Thank you so much for being a part of this today. I pray this is truly a blessing to you. Prayers continue to go up daily for each one of you and for our church in general. Just asking God to hold us, hold us fast and to keep us. Um, believing that he's going to really uh, do that and care for us. I uh, hope that a couple of those uh, songs that we were able to share with you, uh, that my family and I were able to record uh, a few weeks ago when we were up on the Sunshine Coast, pray just like actually seeing some faces singing um, was just different and, and a blessing to you. It sure was fun to, to be together with them and to worship in that way. We're going to come to a passage now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible there with you, Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn to our passage today in the book of Revelation? Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, today beginning at verse 9. When you found that, uh, let's read that together. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held, the, he held seven stars from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah, <laughs> wow. But, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let me take a moment and just pray for us, and then we'll dig into this passage today. Uh, God, we believe this is your word, and, and we come to it this morning asking you, by the power of your spirit, to, to open up eyes, ears, minds, hearts, whatever it is, break down every barrier, every distraction. Would you quiet it right now and just allow us to focus in and, and be in tune with what you want to say to us right now, but to focus in. And, and, and receive the revelation which you first gave to John of yourself, of which you also want to give to us. Inspire our hearts with it, O God, and perform uh, whatever it is, accomplish whatever it is that you want to accomplish in each one of us, just as your word tells us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? 
Amen. Amen. Uh, it was uh, about five years ago now that uh, my father was down here in Vancouver staying over at uh, Mount St. Joseph Hospital where he was uh, being treated for some issues related to his heart that, that were quite serious. And then while in the hospital dealing with that already, he, he developed an infection. Uh, he experienced other really serious complications. And the reality is that there were at least a few times that my family and I honestly wondered if he was really going to make it out of that hospital alive. Was he really going to make it out? Whether that's an experience that you've already had before yourself or just a troubling reminder that one day you will, the fact remains that a day will come when we must surrender the care of another, someone that we love, into the hands of another person. Surrender the care of someone we love into the hands of another. Uh, I mean, I guess there's all kinds of ways we do this every day, but the way I'm thinking of here in particular is a situation like this. When, when, when someone that you've been warring and, and struggling alongside in their illness or whatever it is, that you must now, uh, you, you're seeing them now wheeled off into the care of someone else who now holds their life or death in their hands, and it, and it feels fearful and it feels scary because they're going under the knife and you now have no control over how this story ends. Maybe for you it's a, it's a child or, or a parent or a spouse or, or a close friend in your mind as you imagine a scenario like that or a moment like that in your own mind. And yet regardless of, of who it is that you're thinking of, what is it that you want, no, like, like need, what is it that you need to hear in that moment? Is that, is that bed on wheels is being pushed through the operating room doors that's going to quiet your fears enough for you to be able to let them go? What do you need to hear? Well, I'm not going to speak for you, but I know for myself, what, what the words that I need to hear coming out of someone's mouth in that moment are, the doctors caring for your loved one are, are the best in their field. And they are going to be right there beside your father for the entire time, taking care of them, doing everything in their power to ensure that this person you love so dearly makes it through this incredibly trying time that they're going through and, and comes through safely on the other side. That's what I need to hear. Why? Well, because that knowledge is both incredibly hopeful for the person that I'm, I'm so deeply fearful for, but it's also incredibly hopeful for me as the one who's so fearful about them as well. It's comforting to me and to them to hear that knowledge. So last Sunday, we, we got started on this new teaching series that's going to take us through the summer months, Dear Church, looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And as we continue this morning, finishing out this introductory material, this introductory section in chapter 1, before getting to look at the seven letters to the churches in the coming weeks, what we're going to see in our passage today, this, this continued revelation, this continued apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus reveals himself here as, as just the kind of helper that we would want in the midst of, of any trial, be, be that a loved one experiencing a medical emergency or, uh, as it was in this first century context that John is writing in, for, for beloved churches experiencing violent persecution. He reveals himself as a helper who can remove all fear, both for the sufferer as well as for the one concerned about those who are suffering, when we are able to see him in the fullness with which he reveals himself here. That's the key. Fear, he, he is a helper that's able to remove all that fear. 
when we see him in the fullness of how he reveals himself here. I don't know about you, but I wonder how many of you listening to this right now this morning would, would say that you know that you're living in fear this morning. You're living in fear right now, either about some circumstance that you're facing personally or, or some, a circumstance that someone you love or care about is going through. And you need to be reminded again this morning of the size of your Savior in relation to the size of whatever it is that's causing you to fear. I, I know I do. I need that all the time to, to see the size of my Savior and compare it to the size of my problem and be like, oh, okay. Because that's exactly the hope that this revelation of Jesus is intended to give you and to give me this morning. Just as it was the, the hope Jesus intended to offer to the Apostle John as well as to these churches that he was so concerned for. And so, in, in order that by God's grace, along with Jesus' revelation of himself here, we, we might increasingly live in that fearlessness in our lives today, I want to look at this passage today in just two simple ways. I want to show you, first of all, how Jesus offers fearless hope for John through this revelation of himself, and then fearless hope for the church. Fearless hope for John, fearless hope for the church through Jesus' revelation of himself. So if you close your Bible, close your Bible app, whatever it is, open them again, would you, to that passage in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Follow along with me now as, as we look at Jesus' towering revelation of himself as the living one. Okay, so let's look first of all at fearless hope for John. Fearless hope for John. Now let me just remind you, Quickly, that as, as he mentions here in verse 9, John is writing this letter from the island of Patmos, which was a, a prison colony just off the coast of the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. But that's the thing to remember. It's a, it's a prison colony, okay? John's not on vacation here. He's not, I, John, writing to you from the island called Maui on account of the Lord. Like, no, it's, that's not what he's doing. This is a prison colony that he's writing from. And, and the reason he's imprisoned on the island, as he goes on to say, is on account of, or we could read, because of my faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That, that, that's why he's there, which actually makes a lot of sense when you consider what we looked at last week about the historical context that John was living in here during a, right near the end of the first century under the Roman emperor Domitian. And, and, and the reason it's easy to understand is because one of the things that, that brought such strong persecution against the church at that time in particular was a required practice of all, everybody under Roman rule, that once a year they had to take a, a pinch of incense, burn it on the, on the altar to the godhead of Caesar, and pronounce the words, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Seems pretty simple, but of course that's something that, that a Christian who has but one Lord and Master could not pronounce. They couldn't say that. Uh, uh, but as William Barclay notes, uh, the burning of this pinch of incense was obviously not a test of a man's religious orthodoxy. It was a test of his political loyalty. Therefore, any man who refused to burn his pinch of incense was rendered by his very refusal an outlaw. And so, well, because of John's refusal to make this offering, among other things, he is now imprisoned. He's, he's exiled and imprisoned out on this island. But as you read there right at the beginning of verse 9, you, you get this real sense of John's deep love of his 
this powerful sense of identification that he has with these churches that he's writing to. And, and, and when you understand that, I think you can easily imagine the depth of fear and concern that John had for these churches now that he's been forcefully removed and imprisoned, leaving them to continue under this violent persecution from Caesar, as well as defending against these, all these false teachers within their midst on their own. He's not there to help them through it anymore, and he's feeling fearful for them. And so, as we see in verse 10 there, John is, he's just crying out to God, praying in the Spirit for these churches. That that, that very thing, praying in the Spirit that the Apostle Paul commands us to do uh, in in the face of spiritual uh, warfare. There in Ephesians 6.18, praying always in the Spirit. Now, some have asked the question, well, what... What does that mean? What does it mean John was in the Spirit? Like what, what, what does that look like practically? Well, uh, some have suggested that that means that John was in a, a trance-like state when he received this revelation, much like Peter or the Apostle Peter on the, the roof in Acts 10 when that vision comes down to him of the, the, the sheet with the unclean animals. Uh, some have said, like uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, that, that, that John is literally in some sense, physically transported to heavenly realms where he is, is given this revelation. Or some have said that, that John's prayers are simply in deep alignment with the Spirit, like Paul speaks of in Romans 8. I, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds trying to solve that, that understanding, like which one is it? All, all that to say, though, I just want to say it's important to note that any of those options are possible and plausible, biblically speaking. But if you remember that quote from Daryl Johnson that we uh, talked about last week about the goal of apocalyptic literature being that helping us to see that things are not as they seem or that things are not only as they seem. If you remember that, we can now add on what Daryl goes on to say in his work on this passage. Quote, apocalyptic literature seeks to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future and, more importantly, to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present, which means in, in a very real sense, the book of Revelation is, a, is almost God's revelation, his, his, his response to John's prayers for these churches, as well as the, for the church's prayers for themselves. Uh, as as Daryl writes, God's response is, is to lift off the cover, to pull back the curtain, to, to respond with a revelation, with an apocalypsis, with, with an unveiling of the unseen reality of the present. God responds, Daryl says here, by giving John a powerful vision of who Jesus is. And what a vision it is. <laughs> like, what a vision it is. As John describes this revelation of Jesus as he now presently exists in, in his human and yet fully glorified and exalted state, and just the best language and imagery he can find. It's like, he's like fire, it's like the sun, like bright like snow. Like he's just using everything he could think of in his mind to describe what, what he's seeing. Surely you can imagine when, when you consider the size and the spectacle and the majesty of Jesus' revelation of himself to John, it's no wonder that he faints at the sight of it. It's just overwhelming, unbelievable. In fact, you know what would be interesting? I I'm going to hand this to, if anyone here, like, I don't know, under the age of 13, listening to this, if, if you want this week to just draw a picture of what that looks like, just take that vision that John gets and just draw a picture of, like, what that looks like in your mind. I would love to see that. You send those in. Maybe we'll, we'll get them up on, on the next uh, video or next week or whatever it is. But uh, just to, to picture in our own minds, what does this look like? 
What would that have looked like to see this vision? Just incredible, terrifying, powerful, incredible. And, and what every commentator I read pointed out, though, is that this vision that John has given of, uh, of Jesus, this one like a son of man in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, is identical to the description of this messianic figure that, that we read about all the way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, as well as uh, chapter 10 in particular. Listen, first of all, to Daniel 7. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that sh- one that shall never be destroyed. Now listen to Daniel 10. This is almost word for word. Daniel says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they, just, they, and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling. On my hands and knees. Wow, like you see that? It's like, it's literally like ex- almost some of the exact same picture. So clearly, whatever that messianic figure that Daniel was seeing in his visions is now being revealed to John as, as, as that's Jesus. That, that messianic figure coming to, to rule over the kingdoms of the world for all time. That, that's Jesus. That's what he presently looks like. And although, man, like every one of those, we could spend days just unpacking what each one of those descriptions John gives of Jesus' revelation look like and what they mean and what they're about. What I want to focus on in particular is what John writes about there in verses 12 and beginning of verse 13, as well as verses 17 and 18, when he turns to, to see this voice that's speaking to him. So first of all, look at verses 12 and into the beginning of verse 13. John says he saw seven golden lampstands, which Jesus later in verse 20 identifies that those are, 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 are the seven churches. Each one of them represents the seven churches that John is praying for. But notice in particular where John sees the exalted, glorified Jesus standing. No, not, not above the churches, looking down on them, not, not beside them, looking on them. No, he is standing Right in the midst of them. He's right there in the midst of them. It, it's sort of a, a reverse image in some ways, but, but for many of you, if you would know that story from 2 Kings chapter 6, where, where the prophet Elisha and his servant are surrounded by an army, but then Elisha prays that the eyes of his servant would be open so he could see the present reality as it truly is. And when he does that, he reveals to him a sea, like the mountains all around the sea of angels and chariots of fire surrounding the army that's surrounding them. That's, that's the vision that's, that's revealed of what the present reality actually is. Why? So that his servant's fear might be removed when he sees, as Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Oh, that we could have that, that vision in our lives today to just, God, to, 
Would you give us that vision in our lives to, to see things as they presently are, that those who are with us are more than with them, whatever situations are making us fearful. In the very same way, Jesus here removes John's fear when he reveals the present reality of his intimate, although unseen presence, not surrounding, but in the very midst of the churches. He's like, I'm right here. I'm right here. As, as if to say the one who is with them is, is more than, than the dangers that are surrounding them. And it's on the basis of that intimate presence that Jesus can pick up John off the floor there in verse 17 and say, fear not. You don't need to be afraid, John. Look. Notice, and, 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 and not simply telling him not to be fearful of his overwhelming presence. He's saying, you don't need to fear because I, I'm right there in the midst of, this ch- of those churches. I'm, I'm, I'm right here with them. I'm watching over them. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm here. But you notice as well as you read on into verse 18 that Jesus, he says, is not just, I'm not just in their midst. He says, I am in their midst as the living one. The one who died but who is now alive forevermore and who holds the keys of death and Hades. Do you, do you understand what, what that Jesus is revealing about himself? Do you understand what Jesus is revealing about himself here? Can't get my words here. He's saying, John, you, you don't need to be afraid in the slightest for these churches you're praying for, because I'm not just in the midst of them. I'm uh, in, in dying and rising again. I defeated death itself, which means, listen, Rome doesn't hold the fearful power of death over these churches or any who are my own. I hold that power. I hold the keys to life and death, and I hold them now forevermore. It's exactly as the author of Hebrews writes so powerfully in Hebrews 2. Listen, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus says that's what my presence is like among them. Not just with them, but with them as the living one. So here's my question for you. As you consider Jesus' just staggering revelation of himself to John and to you and I, as well as the the fearful hope that that's intended to inspire in all of us through it, when you think about your own life, when you think about your your family, your friends, whoever it is, and and the world in which you presently live, the question I want to ask you is this. Who are you fearing for? Who are you fearing for? Maybe, Maybe you're a parent fearing for the future of your child. Maybe you're fearful for the health of a parent or a friend. Maybe, maybe you're fearful for the salvation of, of a loved one or a friend that you, you care so much about. Maybe, maybe you're watching the news and you're just fearful for the state of our world, fearful for the economic devastation of COVID-19. Maybe, like John, you're a pastor, fearful for the future of your church, threatened not by necessarily intense persecution, but by a global pandemic and all that that's brought against us. Whatever it is, who are you fearing for this morning? What you and what I need to understand and to truly, truly grasp and take hold of is that what Jesus intends for you and for me in the revelation of himself here in his word, just as he intended for John when he first revealed it himself on the island of Patmos, he's revealing himself not to, not to flex on the world that, that put him to death and, and didn't believe in him, just to be like, yeah, check me out now. Now look how big I am. No. 
That's not what he's doing. He's revealing himself. He's doing this so that you and that I would bring all of our fears for others, we would bring them to him. Uh, seeing him as the ultimate place of, of hope and refuge to bring all these fears for others that we have. And we go, here, would you take this? For in seeing him as he truly is, namely as the first and the last, the God in and over history, as well as being the living one who defeated death itself and dying and rising again and who lives forevermore to him. When we bring these fears for others to him, that we might increasingly have the, the, the fearfulness of, uh, for others, replaced with fearful trust. And then we might have uh, a, a restless despairing for others, replaced with a fearful hope. You can really do that each time you consider the size and the scope of your Savior in comparison with the size and the scope of whatever circumstances are facing whoever it is that you've been praying for. It's intended to bring fearless hope for those that we're praying for. That, that's, that was the fearless hope that Jesus intended in his revelation for John. The last thing I want to look at together with you is fearless hope for the church. Fearless hope for the church. And we need to look at this because the thing we can't forget is that John didn't just receive this revelation of Jesus as he presently exists in all of his glorified and exalted reality just for himself so that he could just say, oh, whew. All right. Okay, well, that's super good to know. Thank you. Thank you for showing me that, Jesus. I'm glad to know you got this. I don't know. I'm going to go get a sandwich now. No. Jesus commanded John here in verse 11 and verse 19. He, he wrote down all that was revealed to him and then sent it to the churches that he'd been praying for so that they, too, might be encouraged. They, too, might have their eyes open to, to see things, their present reality as it truly is. For just think about it, if this revelation of Jesus' exalted and glorified state as, as the living one, his presence in the midst of the churches, that helped to remove fear for John as he was praying for these churches, how much more would this reality have been encouraging to the churches, still living daily under that intense persecution and threat from Rome as well as these false teachers within, how much more would this have meant to them? Because it shows us here, Jesus' revelation of himself in all his fullness is not simply intended to bring about fearless hope for those who are fearing for others. It's also intended to bring about fearless hope for those who are fearing themselves, for those who are also afraid themselves. It brings hope for them. Just in the same way that the promise of the best doctors and the best care didn't just bring hopefulness to my family when, when my father was about to be operated on, it also brought hope for him. It brought hope for my father, knowing he's, he has the best care. He has those who are going to be with him. For in the face of just violent, relentless enemies coming at them from every side, surely you can imagine the pressure to just give up, pressure to just walk away from Jesus, walk away from the church, or even just to hide the, the light of their lampstand, and just offer the pinch of incense to Caesar and show, just be like, oh, you know, how's it going? And, and, and just try to do it just to, in order to save their lives, it would have been huge. It would have been massive pressure to just be like, maybe we should just give in to this and do it because otherwise we're going to get wiped out. And yet as we're going to see in each one of the letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches in the coming weeks, Jesus' stated desire in each one of those letters is that they would overcome, that they would hold fast, that they would conquer. Something impossible to do, either if they walked away from Jesus or if they imagined that they could serve Jesus and Rome. 
No, as we already heard from Daryl Johnson, the, the only thing that would truly enable them to overcome would be to see the present in light of the future, and more importantly, to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. The most transforming, the most hopeful, unseen reality of all, seeing the, the, the presence of the risen, glorified Jesus in their midst. They needed to see that or they would never hold fast. They would never overcome and conquer. And this, this is why, as Leon Morris puts so succinctly, the placing of this vision of Christ right at the beginning of the book is so significant. This book is an unveiling or revealing of Jesus Christ. Christians were a pitiably small group, persecuted by mighty foes. To all outward appearances, their situation was hopeless. But it is only as Christ is seen for who He really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. Absolutely. Again, as, as Daryl Johnson notes, fear, he says, is, is a powerful force. Fear can keep us from doing what is right, and it can make us do what we know is wrong, particularly when we know our lives are on the line. But, then going on to add, but Jesus in his death and resurrection has stolen the weapon of fear. Oh, praise God. He has stolen the weapon of fear in his death and resurrection, which is why a revelation like this would, would truly enable these Christians to overcome. Listen, even if their lives were lost for faithfulness to Christ. Why? Because in unveiling himself as the living one, not only was the glorified Jesus revealing his comforting, protective presence in their midst, he was also revealing himself as the one who defeated death itself, who would overcome the one who has the power of death, not, not Rome itself, but, but the devil himself. He defeated them, and now he holds the keys of death and Hades forever in his hand. He could free those. As Hebrews has said, who through fear of death were held in lifelong slavery. A revelation which when taken all together and when really taken hold of and believed, makes someone invincible. Makes us live out those realities like, like Paul said in Romans 8, that if God is for us, who can be against us? You can really live in that reality when you, when you see this truth. This is, for example, the, the exact reason why Paul made, made such a big deal about Jesus' resur re resurrection in the churches that he was writing to. Uh, Revelation, uh, or sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, they make a huge deal about the resurrection there, really hinging the entire reliability of the Christian faith on Jesus' victory over death. Or as, as he says to the church he was writing to in Rome, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As the living one, that, that's what makes his presence among us so powerful and so hopeful. So I... I mean, I trust you see what a revelation like this would have meant for the churches that he was writing to, living under daily fear from danger from without and from within, inspiring them to invincible, fearless hope in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their fear of death. But do you also see what a revelation like this means for your life and for mine, as well as for our church today as well? Do you see it? Because, yes, yeah, I know that... I'm pretty sure, last time I checked, none of us are living under the kind of violent, threatening persecution like the churches John was writing to were. And as far as I know, uh, the church is also not dealing with any uh, 
false teachers from within trying to tear our church apart. I'm pretty sure that's not happening as well right now. And yet, I also know that there is all kinds of things that we experience every day that cause us to fear. Cause us to fear for ourselves. Fears of, of rejection. Fears of failure. Fears of the future. Fears of the past. Fears uh, uh, that, that we're not going to be good enough parents for our kids. That we're not going to be good enough kids for our parents. We're not going to be good enough students. We're not going to be good enough employees. Whatever it is. All kinds of things that cause us to fear. But how does seeing Jesus, the exalted, glorified Jesus as being with you in the midst of those fearful circumstances transform and completely redefine all those things that currently seem so fearful? See that He is with you. And more than that, even even with, without the threat of death from some oppressive persecuting government coming against us, trying to put us to death. We all know still that, yeah, one day, no matter how health and safety conscious we are, no matter how much Pilates and, and, and spinach and quinoa salads you eat, whatever it is, we know that one day our life will still end. It's still going to end, which is a fearful prospect for all of us. But even with that fearful prospect in front of us, how does seeing Jesus' present reality as the living one, who's defeated death itself and is alive forevermore, helped to inspire a fearless hope to be able to face that day of death when it inevitably comes. But more than that, out of that hope, also inspire fearless hope to live the life that God has called you to live today as well. Because that's not the thing. Like the, the fear of death in the future can cause us to not be able to live in all the fullness today because we're constantly thinking about that day and trying to avoid that day. But when that day is secure, when we know that the living one is standing there waiting to receive us, we can live life fearlessly in the present as well. We don't need to fear the future or the present because the living one is in our midst. It, 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 it's perhaps not an immediately apparent reality or, or just really obvious from the text right off the page, but, but I believe one of the most important hopes, the most important fearless hopes that this revelation of Jesus is intended to create in all of us, but regardless of, of whatever circumstances you happen to be facing, whatever even like moment in history we happen to be living in, one of the most important hopes in this revelation of Jesus is the timelessness of the promise timelessness of it for do you see as the living one who died and rose again and who is now alive forevermore what that means first of all is that Jesus promise of his presence with us in the midst of our suffering in the midst of our threatening was not just an unseen reality revealed to some churches 2,000 years ago it's a reality for every single person and for every single church who belongs to Jesus today as well it's a reality for us now it means for all who are in Christ Although you can't physically see him present, Jesus is with you now, presently, and he always will be. He's with you right now. And what it also means is that in every way Jesus came to, to love and to serve his bride, the church in the past, uh, to, to be a, a redeemer who absorbed the just wrath of God against sin in his death, to, to be uh, our shepherd whose sheep know his, know his voice, uh, to be the, the, the bread of life and the living water, to satisfy every one of our hungers and thirsts at the, at the deepest level, to be a prophet 
who speaks the very words of God and calls us to faithfulness, to be a high priest who lives to intercede for us on behalf of us before the throne of God and as the king of kings who rules over all with true justice and mercy as the living one who died and who rose again and is alive now forevermore. That means Jesus continues to love and continues to serve us now presently in all those same ways. And he will do that for all eternity because he's the living one. We don't need to trade out saviors. Let's see what this new one's going to be like. And all the ways that he was faithful in the past, came to love and to serve his bride of the church, he will be faithful and can be faithful to continue on and carry that through for all eternity. Which means he is doing that now presently and he will continue to do it. Yeah, the reality is that presently, this, this reality is unseen to us. It is, I know. Just, just as it was unseen for these churches that John was writing to. Can't see physically Jesus standing here with us. But for all who trust that we serve a risen Savior, that Jesus' resurrection is true, that he is the living one, he is now a living, glorified Savior, I believe this is a revelation of Jesus that still has power today to create a fearless hope in every single one of us has the power to create that fearless hope in you and in me and all of us. For, as the Apostle Peter said so simply and so profoundly to a suffering church that he was writing to, hoping in the exact same unreality as we are today, he said this, and I'll close with this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith salvation of your soul.